You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World, conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an associate professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Alison Fuller. Alison is Pro-Director of Research and Development at the IOE, and she is also a Professor of Vocational Education and Work. Alison is an authority on the topics of post-compulsory education, lifelong learning, vocational education and apprenticeships. Hello, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rob. Really good to be talking to you this morning. Likewise. We're going to talk about your research shortly, Alison. But before we do, I'd like to ask you about your research and development role at the IOE. Can you tell us what being the pro-director of research and development entails? Yes. Well, first of all, I think it's the best job in the IOE. Um, So the reason that I say that is that I oversee um, all the research that um, is undertaken at the IOE, all across our different departments and research centres and groups. And the breadth, diversity and quality of our research is truly inspiring. So my job really is to keep a hand on the tiller to make sure that we're fulfilling our mission to contribute to society and, and really make a difference to people's lives, particularly through education, and to really give our researchers the confidence and resources and support they need to undertake amazing research that then engages with the people that they're trying to help so so, so that we can make a, a real difference. And it's worth saying, isn't it, that even though we are the Institute of Education, our work spans out into social sciences and it and it touches on health as well. So we cover quite a range of disciplines in the research world. We're unique, actually, amongst faculties of education in the breadth and diversity of the disciplinary expertise that's included. We span from teacher educators and more mainstream educationalists through sociologists, psychologists, historians, philosophers, engineers, people who are particularly expert in health-related research, people who've got really specialist interests and expertise in particular conditions that often affect people's ability to learn. So we have a a great specialism around special educational needs and learning needs and development needs more generally. We have a lot of expertise in system development, so um, helping and supporting the development of school leaders and college leaders and generally um, sector leadership and management. So we really do span the whole range. And I think what's distinctive and what's a challenge and but also a, a great joy is when we can bring those disciplinary perspectives together to tackle questions in new ways. I think there's been a recognition that many questions can't be particularly well answered without bringing in a a range of expertise. And that's what we really try and do and have the opportunity to do through through our sort of size and scale. And the, the last thing I'd say is that as part of UCL, whom we joined about five or six years ago, the playground in which we're playing 
has become you know huge we now are able to work with scientists across UCL and increasingly are finding ways of contributing to um, very big research programs um, that um, others within UCL may be leading and we're contributing education and social science uh, perspectives into those and it's giving our researchers the opportunity to work with neuroscientists doctors uh, of medicine lawyers, archaeologists, architects, and so on and so forth. So opportunities really are endless. And it's it's really just our own imagination and energy that um, we need to mobilise in order to take full ad- advantage of those. I like the way you talk about it being a playground. Uh, it's a, I, I, Sometimes I think of it as a sweet shop, and I think they're both offering up both analogies offer up a sort of tantalising way of collaborating and connecting with people who, it's just, as you say, it's just a little bit more straightforward now that we're under the same roof. Recently, the IOE was ranked number one for education worldwide in the QS World University Rankings for the seventh year in a row. What is it that makes the IOE's research stand out? I think it it must be the, the quality and the breadth and the very strong outward facing mindset that we bring to um, our research. So we very strongly encourage our researchers to engage with colleagues from universities around the world. That's both in terms of developing research collaborations so that we put together teams of researchers that involve international researchers as well as as our own, own researchers, but also in terms of encouraging and supporting people to go out to conferences, to speak, to give papers, to work with governments in other countries. You really see their mission as being, yes, absolutely to help improve and address national issues, but also to get engaged with international issues. And I think that's really what has supported and recognised our reputation in recent years um, through, you know, and as, as evidenced by the QS rankings. I think one of the things that makes the IOE distinctive, and you've mentioned it already, Alison, is the scale and the breadth of the research we do. And we look at the whole life course and all phases of education, which brings me neatly to one of your own research interests, lifelong learning. Uh, Tell us about how you came to study lifelong learning. I think it was initially a personal interest. I actually left school at 16. In those days, I'm beginning to age, O-levels with good O-levels, but in my day, as my sons call it, it wasn't necessarily the norm to stay on after 16 at school or to go to university. I think at that time, it was only about 10% of young people who went straight on to university. So I went out into the world and did a variety of different things, lived in France for a while, lived in Germany for a while, and did some traveling in the United States and did a lot of reading and fiction reading and realised that I'd got unfinished business with my own education, as I think many people think, you know, when they come into their sort of early or mid-twenties and decided to go back to school. And I ended up at Lancaster University doing a a BA in linguistics. So that experience really, um, I think, brought home to me that learning is, is a lifelong occupation. It's not something that begins and ends when you leave school. And through the experience of of going out into the world and meeting a lot of different people, I was, you know, really sensitised and impressed to how skillful people are when you come into contact with them in their jobs. And so I became fascinated in how people learn 
their occupational expertise. And I recognised that across the spectrum of occupations. So, you know, for example, I became sensitised when you go to the hairdressers about how skillful a hairdresser is when you go and have a meal or, you know, in my case, my mother is an amazing cook. You know, the kind of amount of learning that goes into that as well as, you know, the contact that you have with professionals, whether they're doctors or dentists or or lawyers or whatever. So I was really interested in that and pursued it through, you know, through my own sort of burgeoning research interests when I had my first job as a research assistant in a project at Lancaster University. So I think it was internal, external, and I've always played with that kind of sense of my own understanding and lived experience and what I'm reading and learning about from my own research and from the research of others. Alison, I want to ask you about a phrase that almost always comes up when vocational and practical learning gets talked about, often in the media, and that's parity of esteem. Tell us what it is and how you think it's helpful or unhelpful in the debates around improving perceptions of vocational and practical education. I think it's unhelpful because it immediately sets up the academic as the reference point and um, that uh, by implication sets up the vocational as the deficit route. So it's suggesting that if only we can do X, Y and Z, vocational education could be equivalent in esteem to academic education. So I think it's in that sense, it's unhelpful and it's always going to you know, result in a sort of disappointment and keep vocational education on the back foot. I prefer to think about vocational education and I'm sure we might get on to talk about apprenticeship and work-based learning as models of learning Mm -hmm. and that the models of learning which they encompass are actually relevant to everybody. It's about learning through participation and learning through participation in a whole range of different types of learning opportunity, whether that's practical or whether it's more academic. So For me, really good vocational education has very much at its heart both practical and theoretical learning, both knowledge and practice. And that really is is a hallmark. And if you think about how people learn to be doctors, then you'll see key characteristics of very high quality vocational education at the heart of that. And of course, much that goes on in universities is actually vocational. So I prefer to talk about the kind of characteristics of high quality models of learning rather than thinking about competition between different routes in terms of esteem. Clearly, if people have a really high quality vocational education, the outcome is that they have access to really productive careers through which they can be autonomous adults and make you know, super contributions to society. And that's really, in a way, the kind of prize which I'm sure everybody would be, you know, thankful for and would support. Absolutely. We'll talk a little bit about apprenticeships now, shall we? There are few things in education that seem to have the image problem that apprenticeships do. Now, why is that? And can you tell us how the work that you've done challenges the misperceptions of apprenticeships? Yeah, I I think that there are different reasons for misperceptions. One of them may be the sort of historical image of apprentices, you know, in Victorian England and earlier, perhaps being, you know, very young children and being tied to a master for many, many years, earning practically nothing, perhaps getting their keep and lodgings. 
So that could have sort of sense that apprentices can be put upon and potentially exploited. So I think that kind of historical legacy is potentially there, at least for some, if they have a, a misapprehension about apprenticeship. That's a, quite a long legacy, isn't it? We're talking about almost hundreds of years ago, a, a conceptualisation of apprenticeships where it is associated with board and lodgings and I guess a subservient kind of relationship. You know I think that's right but of course you know we do know about these things they've been written about in fiction um, and so on so as I say the other side of that of course is that you know apprenticeship even historically was a formal route with formal recognition through the system of, of guilds that enabled people who successfully completed an apprenticeship to become what was known as a journeyman and what that meant was that, um, that you were able to go out into the world and earn your own living and have that autonomy and to travel, to ply your trade. And that's the, the meaning of, of journeyman. You mentioned earlier that you spent some time in Germany. Germany is often held up as something of a model for vocational education. Is there anything that you picked up from your time in Germany that has you know, informed your thinking and research? Not so much for, you know, when I was a a young person going there and sort of getting whatever work I could. (laughs) But certainly since I've started to, you know, to study and to research vocation education, apprenticeships and so on, you know, I've always taken a great interest in the German model, which is also practiced in some similarity in other uh, European countries such as Switzerland and, and Denmark as well. It does have huge strengths. It's very embedded in history and culture in Germany, which of course is quite hard to replicate in other countries. You know, there's a danger in trying to borrow from other countries. It's helpful and can be inspiring, but it's not terribly easy to to pull off. The key thing I think that I've taken away from the German system is this idea of dual learning. So their uh, apprenticeship and vocational education is very structured into including planned on and off the job provision. They also take the role of the vocational teacher very seriously and have full programmes of education to qualify people to become vocational teachers or indeed to become what they call meisters in the workplace. So people in the workplace who've been trained to be trainers. And those occupations in Germany are have high status and high standing and have a lot of resources put into them in terms of the colleges and teachers that teach the vocational educators and the Meisters and so on. So there's a a whole infrastructure there, which is sort of hugely impressive and has been sustained over a long time. And that's an area which, you know, in England and the UK more generally, we haven't got that kind of tradition. So whilst we have fantastic vocational educators and fantastic workplace trainers, of course, the system that underpins and supports that is thinner, yeah. weaker than um, than you'd find in Germany. I think that's really interesting because when we're talking about parity of esteem, it, this demonstrates that it's a system level issue, isn't it? It's I sometimes get a little concerned. I think when I see well-meaning people, perhaps ministers and so on, talking about parity of esteem. But you don't achieve parity of esteem just by saying it over and over again. It's evident from the German model that it is something that is built up over time. And it's something that finds its way into every element of the education and training system. Absolutely. And it's a fact that high quality vocational education is expensive. 
Are the challenges of setting up and running apprenticeships greater in some sectors or industries than others? Yes, absolutely. Some sectors and industries have a, do have a tradition of apprenticeship being a key resource and vehicle for growing their own workforce and their own skills. So engineering, for example, you know, has you know, a really strong uh, legacy here where generations of, of engineers have been apprentices, have worked their way through the ranks and become managers and perhaps managers of the company's apprenticeship programme and so on and so forth. So there's a sort of capacity there which is, is really helpful. They're also very supported by you know, professional bodies and professional ladders of progression which are very well established. So, you know, at the bottom rung, you're enabled to become registered or as an associate with a professional body through your apprenticeship. And then as you go up through the training, perhaps gaining a, a bachelor degree and then potentially a master's and becoming chartered, you get different um, statuses within the professional body. And that's all really clear and transparent and, and well understood and recognised across your labour market. So you can you know, you can transfer to a job in another company or another branch and your qualifications and experience will be understood and recognised. So there are a range of, of reasons why that capacity has developed and why it's kind of um, more easy to sustain. The same would be said in accountancy, for example. There's quite a few examples of where there's a tradition and, uh, and that kind of capacity. In others, it's less easy. And I could give a, an example or two of that if that would be helpful. Oh, yes, please. So if we take retail, for example, you know, retail hasn't in this country had a strong tradition of apprenticeship or formal vocational education. It's characteristically a sector where you can get a job as a sales assistant and through your own efforts and ability, you can work your way up within the company. You may get some training along the way. You can work your way up. And I can give you know, a personal ex example. When I was in my years before I settled down and became an, an academic, I worked in Liberties in the West End. And I started as a sales assistant in the what was then called the separates department, worked my way up to becoming a buyer's clerk and then the supervisor of the scarf department. And I might have gone on to become a buyer, but I decided to take a different path in life. But I didn't have any you know, formal vocational education to enable me to do that. So retail has got different traditions and ways in which you get in and get on. That's not to say that apprenticeship doesn't have something to offer. But it hasn't got, you know, there aren't the kind of hooks and infrastructure that has made it easy for retail to kind of engage with apprenticeship. I think it certainly helps and can kind of complement, but it's just a sector with such different traditions. Your work on apprenticeships links in with social mobility too, and you talk about something you call expansive apprenticeships. Could you tell us a bit about that idea and why it's important? Yes, so a lot of the research that I've undertaken has been in you know, a range of different sectors and, and different sorts of organisations. And working with my long-term collaborator, Professor Lorna Unwin, we reflected on the, the evidence that we've been collecting uh, about apprenticeship in these different sectors, different sizes of company, companies with very different histories, old companies, new companies, big companies, small companies, and so on. We tried to work out what it was, what it was and why in some companies the apprenticeship appeared to be a very high quality and be of great satisfaction to the individual apprentices as well as with as well as to the employers. 
And we unpacked those findings and developed a series of what we call characteristics or features, which we were able to plot on a continuum from restrictive at one end to expansive at the other. So key ones were, for example, was did the apprentice have access to planned and structured learning on and off the job? Was it clear what the outcome of the apprenticeship was going to be in terms of its position in a, a ladder of progression? You know, if they successfully completed the apprenticeship, was it going to give them access to a skilled job that would provide them with some autonomy, with some stability and with the opportunity to progress further in the occupation after that? Did they have access to trainers and supervisors who could support their learning and who they could engage with to identify and reflect on strengths and weaknesses and, and what they needed to develop? So a whole range of characteristics that we were able to kind of plot and which we've turned into a tool, what we call an analytical tool, the expansive restrictive framework, and which providers and employers can use to self-evaluate their provision. Because one of the key things we've found is that that employers and the providers that are supporting them don't set out to offer a restrictive apprenticeship. Often their provision is not as expansive as it might be because they're not quite sure how to do it. And that, of course, is particularly the case in some of these sectors where there isn't a long tradition of apprenticeship and there isn't that kind of inherited knowledge. So that tool has been taken up quite widely in industry and I think has really helped people. It's not designed to make providers or employers feel that they're not doing it properly, but it's designed there for them to use and have the agency to use to think about how and in what ways they might be able to move, if not all of the aspects of their apprenticeship, but some of them further along the expansive scale. It sounds like what you're describing is improving the workplace as well as the apprenticeship itself. So is there something in that? There is something wider here about it's the context within which people work and learn, which can also feed into better learning experiences. I think that's right. One of the things that Lorna and I have, have talked about is, you know, better workplaces equals better apprenticeships. And that through looking at apprenticeships and how the extent to which they're expansive or not, it gives us a, a kind of window on the health of the workplace as a learning environment. Because where apprenticeships are working well, you'll find a lot of other features of the workplace which are supportive of learning more generally across the workforce. People understand that they're workers and learners at whatever level they are. They understand that there's always more to learn. And a key feature of apprenticeship, of course, is that it's a substantial programme of new learning. You know, you start as a novice and you end up as somebody who's got great competence. So that sort of sense in which we're all workers and learners is a sort of feature of those workplaces. And also you see kind of pedagogical features day to day. So you see feedback being given, you see problems being solved collaboratively, where people are thinking, actually, how has this problem arisen? What can we do to resolve it? How can we think about preventing it happening again? So there's a sort of dialogic approach um, and also a recognition that everybody's got skills, you know, whether they're junior, whether they're a new start, whether they're very senior. So that, uh, in a sense, openness to hearing and listening and involving colleagues is predominant in those workplaces which appear to us to have a more expansive character. So you're valuing your workforce and you're valuing what they know regardless of where they might stand in the organisation 
Absolutely. So just to give a quick example from a research project that Lorna and I carried out a few years ago, we were asked by a big hospital trust to have a look at the porters, the hospital porters, and what opportunities for learning they have. Now, hospital porters are normally on the lowest band of the NHS's occupational and pay structure. You don't need any formal qualifications to become a porter. And as you may know or think, they're, they're actually often quite invisible in the hospital. They're, however, when you look at their work, they're the, in a sense, they're the conduit and the enabler of so much to happen. They take specimens around the hospital, they take oxygen cylinders around the hospital, they you know, do a whole range of, of activities taking patients to theatre and, and back and so on and so forth. So when we followed porters around in our ethnographic study, we were amazed at what they did and also how much they knew. And actually they had quite a lot of clinical knowledge and they had a lot of social expertise in terms of how they engaged with parents, patients, sorry, and their, and their families, and really made a difference to the experience of those patients and their families, as well as supporting the doctors and nurses. So we were able, first of all, to bring that to the fore in our study and to give examples and to explain to the, uh, the managers in the hospital that had commissioned this study what it was actually that porters were doing. And then we were able to work together to think how the hospital could better to support the development and opportunities for porters to make their work more recognised and actually to give them the opportunity to perform their skills to a higher sense to, to the potential that, um, that, that, that they had. So hospitals and hospital staff are very much in our minds at the moment. We're recording this podcast in separate locations because the UK is in a state of virtual shutdown due to the coronavirus health emergency. So I just wanted to link that into our final question, Alison, and the role of the IOE and the research in the post-coronavirus landscape of the UK. It seems like this is going to have a transformational effect on UK society. So I'm curious, what do you think the research from the IOE will be able to offer policymakers and practitioners in the years ahead as we get to grips with life after corona? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all starting to think about this now and to, you know, to really get our heads, try and get our heads around it. We have, as I mentioned before, you know, researchers working in myriad fields at the IOE and they will all be thinking in their own ways about about this. So, for example, the Thomas Coram Research Unit focuses on children and families from the perspective of interaction between um, parents and children, but also how society supports them and a whole range of social policy interests. They will be thinking very hard about the implications of the virus on, on family relationships, on children in care, on relationship, intergenerational relationships. Um, you know, children will be, you know, anxious and worried about their grandparents. Grandparents will be anxious and worried about their, their families and grandchildren. So those sorts of questions about interaction, about intergenerational relationships, about implications for our social care and public policy around support for children and families will be at the forefront of, of their concerns. Another of our centres, the Centre for Teachers and Teaching Research, they of course will be thinking very hard about uh, what teaching means um, in a context of school closure and what it means for teacher identity, what it means for the teacher workforce. We know that the teacher workforce is 
you know, uh, a workforce which, you know, has a huge pressures on it. We know that retention has been a problem before this virus. You know, what will the, the virus and the implications of remote teaching have for the workforce, for attraction into the workforce? for retention, for progression, for all those kinds of issues. And my colleagues, uh, led by Martin Mills, will be thinking very hard about those questions. Another of our centres, the Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, focuses on how education at every stage and phase of education from early years through primary, secondary, tertiary education, higher education, adult education, and workplace learning, how it provides um, a vehicle for improving uh, life, life chances and social mobility. And there's very many questions that are arising directly from the virus about the cancellation of exams and how fair methods are going to be used to determine the results this year and open doors or not for young people to enter the sixth form or enter higher education or indeed to have access to apprenticeships. So there's a, a whole range of policy questions and we very much stand ready to work with um, the Department for Education and other government departments to offer our services in terms of our expertise, uh, knowledge of the evidence, but also where appropriate to undertake new research to really explore some of these implications and ramifications from the virus. And potentially, you know, it's that thing about um, crisis being the, I'm going to mix my metaphors, but the mother of invention and the opportunity for, you know, potentially exciting new developments to come out of this that hopefully will be sustainable and will be have beneficial impacts in the future, particularly on the most vulnerable and the most disadvantaged, which, you know, we are a values driven faculty and organisation. I think hopefully the vast majority of my colleagues would agree with me that we are particularly concerned with how our work can support the life chances of those who are more disadvantaged than others. So that's very much at the forefront of our thinking at the moment. Indeed, there's lots and lots to be thinking about and lots and lots is going to keep us busy for some years to come. Alison, thanks so much for talking with us. It's been great to chat with you. Oh, it's absolute, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Rob. You can find out more about IOE's research at ucl.ac.uk slash IOE slash research. And if you want to read more about Alison's work in particular, that's on the website too. We'll include all the links in the show notes. There's a trove of podcast episodes from the IOE available for you. Just search IOE podcast on your favourite podcasting app and check out other episodes of Research for the Real World and our playlist of music chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. That's also on our webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Rob Webster. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London.